We do love you this morning, Father, and, and so we would cast down our idols. We would renounce the things that turn our hearts and our eyes away from our precious Lord Jesus, whom we adore. Father, with the enabling power of your indwelling Holy Spirit and through the authority and the, the credibility of your word, would you help us to bring every thought and every imagination into line with your word that we would bring every thought into obedience to your word. Thank you, Father, for the sharp sword that we hold in our hands today, the living and powerful word. Thank you for the the historical accounts that we can study of those gone before us, what it means to us, and the value of it to learn life lessons, to learn spiritual lessons and character lessons from their lives, both of their victories and their failures. We commit ourselves, Lord, to your word and to the obedience of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder if you've heard the story of the guy, a story like it, if not this story, of the guy who was uh, reading the newspaper one day. And the guy was a real car buff. He enjoyed classic cars, and he noticed in the classified ad section of the local newspaper that uh, there was a collector's edition Studebaker, this old car, that was available for $100. Guy looked at the paper, he thought, man, that just cannot be. Something wrong with this. So he decided not to act upon it, but it just kept bugging him all morning. So he finally got his phone and he, he called the number and a lady answered and he said, I'm calling about the Studebaker that you have for $100 in the paper. Do you still have it? And the lady said, yes. And so he got the information, appropriate information, and jumped in his car and he headed over there. And sure enough, the lady takes him out back to the garage and, and opens the door and, and pulls a dust cover off of a vintage classic collector's item Studebaker, obviously well cared for. The guy was totally surprised because he was pretty sure on the way over that it had to be a joke or it had to be a rusted out bucket of bolts or, or all dismantled in a box or something to be worth $100. lady said, here it is. The guy looked at it and started reaching for his checkbook and he thought, $100 is all you want. She said, yes. And His conscience got the best of him as he started to write his check and he he stopped for a minute and he said, Ma'am, he said, you know that this car is worth thousands of dollars, not just a hundred dollars. Oh, I I totally understand that, the lady said. She said, you need to understand this was my husband's joy. This was the focus of his life. And recently he ran off with his secretary and I got a... I got a note from his attorney the other day that with the title of this car and I was instructed to sell it and send him the cash. <laughs> Don't you love it when people get what they deserve? Don't you especially love it when other people get what they deserve? Huh? That's kind of the feeling that we've had with our man Jacob in our story of the book of beginnings in Genesis. And I invite you to turn back to Genesis this morning. We've had about a five-week break. Back to Genesis chapter 29. 
We are beginning a three-chapter section, chapter 29, chapter 30, and chapter 31, that represent a 20-year window in the life of Jacob. This is a time when you'll recall that he was instructed by his mother after they had schnookered his father out of the birthright and the blessing, and his brother Esau was so angry he was ready to murder him, that his mother, Rebecca, said to her favorite son, Jacob, you need to leave town, you need to leave town now. We'll convince your father that it's okay by saying you need a wife. And indeed, he needed a wife. Most Many Bible students believe at this point he was about in his mid-70s. He was still at home. He was still kind of a mama's boy. You have to understand that in this time of the patriarchs, according to the chronology of the biblical text, Though lifespans are diminishing, they still lived a long time, not the six to nine hundred years that the uh, pre-Diluvian men lived before the flood, but they're living still uh, 150 years is pretty common up, up that age range, but the lifespan is diminishing. But we still would assume that a man 77 years old at this point would maybe be cut that in half to be the equivalent of a man in our era of a man about 35 years old, something like that. Still strong, still relatively young. But even by these Eastern standards, even by the culture in which they lived, he was still getting old for a man who had not established a home and taken a wife. So it was a good guise, if you recall the story, after they had um, been so deceptive with Father Isaac, and after Esau was so angry, murderously angry, it was a good line uh, for Rebekah to encourage her son Jacob to go find her brother Laban over in the land of Haran, quite a journey, and uh, go there to try to seek a wife among their own people. You maybe recall that in Genesis we encounter about chapter 11, we begin the, the story of Abraham. He's the one who left home by faith and is, is the man who's received the promise of God that through him a great nation would spring, through whom the whole world would be blessed. And Abraham, remember, and Sarah in their old age had Isaac, and Isaac's the one who went up to Mount Moriah with his father, and there was bound and put on the altar and almost killed in a sacrificial act by Father Abraham. Even though he knew this was the son of promise, but remember his great faith, which he was commended for in Hebrews 11, that even though he were dead, God would raise him from the dead. And there we had that picture of a type of Christ even. But God stopped him through the angel, the knife plunging into his chest. The ram was stuck in the thicket. Remember this? It's, it's dusty in the memories there. We've been a while getting... Back to it. So we have Abraham, we have his son Isaac, and then Abraham sent his servant, and it's going to almost parallel the picture in, in chapter 29, going there to Haran, going there where Laban's sister, Rebekah, was the one that came to the well and watered the servant's camels, remember, and that indicator of God's will, and they took her back, and she became Isaac's wife, and then they had a hard time conceiving. And then about in a 20-year window of prayer, supplication before the Lord, God gave them these twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob was the younger. And remember when they were young men and Esau came in from the hunting field so famished, Jacob with his red lentil bean stew 
schnookered his brother out of his birthright, the beginning phases of it, and then in the old age of their father Isaac, in his blindness, Jacob, through the manipulation of his mother Rebekah, went in, put the goat hair on her arms, and so forth. And that's the part where we just don't like Jacob. Guy's a weasel. Guy's a worm. Guy's not forthright. Guy doesn't deserve good things to happen to him. Well, he's going to end up knowing what it feels like in our text today to get schnookered in the dark of night when he's blind and can't see. But I want to stop and remind you of something before we move into our text, and that is, if you'll recall a few weeks ago when we ended chapter 28, Jacob is a new man. Jacob has had an encounter, a personal encounter with God. Remember, he set off on this long journey by himself to Haran. And remember, he laid down to sleep and put the rock under his head. That's easy to remember. That's weird. But a rock for a pillow. I don't like that. I wouldn't sleep like that. And in the middle of the night, he's dreaming. And the heavens open in that great staircase, that ladder with the heavenly beings coming up and down, and God opened heaven to him, and God came to him, and in verse 15 of chapter 28, made the Abrahamic covenant promise to Jacob himself. It's as though it is probably the first time that Jacob paid attention to God personally. And we talked to him about being a second or third generation Christian, and how easy it is for our children to just ride on the faith coattails of their parents But here's a third-generation, quote-unquote, Christian. That's a New Testament term. But a third-generation follower of Yahweh who finally gets it. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Remember that? I use that verse often. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is come. I'm not what I used to be, praise God. I've been to the cross that we're singing about. I've taken off my burden of sin by the grace enabling of my Lord Jesus Christ and admitted my sinfulness. And there at the cross, I received a righteousness that was not my own. A righteousness that only God could give through Christ. And it was was given over to me Imputed is the theological term. And so not only at the cross did I get rid of sin, but I took on righteousness that I didn't deserve. That's grace. And I stood up to turn to walk and live in newness of life and to grow now in my, the word we use is sanctification. I have been positionally established righteous before God through Christ, but now I'm living in this life. And you know what it's like, don't you? And the flesh cries out, and the old ways die hard. And I think this is a lot where we find Jacob in our story today. He has had an encounter with God. It is now for real to him. He's a new man before the Lord. The old is going away. And the new is coming to Jacob. And he's growing in a sense in his sanctification. And using a New Testament term. And there we find him. And so... Though there's a part of us that know this guy is a weasel, he's deceptive, he's defrauding, he's not afraid to go in and lie repeatedly to his aging blind father, to schnooker his brother no matter which way he could. He doesn't deserve good things to happen to him. 
He deserves to know what it feels like to get ripped off. Well, he's going to find out. Let's read our story. But understand that as we read, Jacob is a new man. We're going to read all of chapter 29. I'll probably interrupt myself several times. We'll try to just kind of understand this part of the story. And so here Jacob is. He rises from this spiritual encounter, which is the last part of chapter 28. And then it says, Then Jacob, verse 1, chapter 29, continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. You need to understand a couple things out of verse 1. First of all, in the English, the word continued on doesn't give the way the Hebrew, which the Old Testament was originally written, this part of it in Hebrew, the meaning of the word is he lifted his feet. It has the idea of, of almost um, prancing, lifting up your feet with, with energy. And I think what we find is that after Jacob has had this encounter with God, he's no longer running from a brother who wants to kill him, but he is following after the blessing of God. And he's lifted his feet. He's on his way. He's going to find a wife. The man's 77 years old. You'd lift your feet too, wouldn't you? Off you go. Let's find her. Let's see what God has. Do you remember that part of your Christian life, not finding a wife, but the wonder of wondering what God had next for you? What's God going to do? And you live with a, with a everyday anticipation that God's going to do something and he lifts his feet. He continued on. Second thing you need to understand that in verse one, a lot of mileage and a lot of time goes by. It's just one verse, but it says he continued on. He's hundreds of miles from there. He's traveling alone through the wilderness. It took weeks. And so he's thinking and he's pondering and the stage is being set in his mind. He came to the land of the eastern peoples and there he saw a well in the field with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. And then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? And we're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked, asked them, Is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And look over there, here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. That's kind of an interesting moment, isn't it? Traveling all this way, wondering what God has in store. He doesn't have a GPS. He doesn't have a map. He doesn't really know where he is. This is a large area of landscape. He encounters this well. It's some kind of a cistern type well or a seeping well where the water stays in it. And they cover it with a rock either to keep dead animals out so that the animals don't go in there and drown and taint their water. Or, or so that only certain shepherds can get to it easily or whatever. He comes in there, there's these three flocks, so there's probably at least three shepherd boys there. The sun is high. We don't know why they're there. They're not supposed to be there. And as soon as he finds out that he's in Haran and that, that Laban is well, and then they look, what do you know? Here comes one of Laban's daughters. What do you think Jacob's thinking? I want to meet her. That's what I came for. That fits the criteria. That's my mother's brother. That's my cousin. And first encounter in the word here in a few minutes with kissing cousins. 
She's within the parameters of the blessing of my parents that I can marry. He looks back at these guys. Why don't you water your sheep and get out of here, man? He wants to court this girl, I guess. You don't want these guys standing around listening to him talk. He wants to find out what's going on. They won't. They're either lazy or irresponsible or just don't want to work hard that day. Why they're hanging around the well with the rock on top of it, not off in the pasture while the sun's high, while their sheep can graze, coming in early, trying to get their watering done so they can go home, I guess. So Jacob himself jumps too. Look what it says. Look, verse 7. The sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to the pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. They made excuses. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Isn't that kind of an interesting scenario? Remember I've referenced Abraham's servant who went to the well, probably not the same well. It was there that he saw Rebekah, Laban's sister. We've encountered Laban before. We found then he was greedy for money when he saw his sister's arm bracelets and jewelry when the servant bestowed her with gifts and he went home. He was very interested in meeting that servant, largely driven for monetary gain, no doubt. But there at the well, the servant sat. A little bit of role reversal in that when the servant went, he prayed for God's will and Rebekah came and offered to water his camels. Remember that? But here we have Jacob himself We have no record that he prayed about this decision. It does appear very much that he is allowing his eye gate to dictate his decisions. This is a pretty girl. She meets my standards. We don't know where he was in his walk with the Lord. We think it was a growing relationship and that he was walking by faith. And instead of the girl watering the camels, it's the man watering the sheep. But nevertheless, there's a connection And they get together. Notice what happens next in our story. When Jacob saw Rachel, verse 10, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep out loud. That's amazing. That's very impressive. Guys, you looking for a girl? You want to make a good instant hit? Go up to her. Don't know who she is? Kiss her and start to cry. (laughs) She'll say, oh, he's so sensitive. That's what I'm looking for in a man. I don't know what's going on here with this guy. What I think's happening is the reality of where he is and that this just came out of nowhere. It's what he's been thinking about. It's what he's been meditating upon. No doubt it's what he's been praying for. It does seem that even culturally it is somewhat inappropriate that he would kiss her. I take it that he does it realizing that it's a relative. He doesn't do it in a sensual way. I take it that it wasn't probably a big smooch on the mouth, but a kiss on the cheeks for greeting. He does it again to Laban there in a minute that even to this day in the East is a traditional greeting. But then, overwhelmed with the emotion of the moment, realizing that there's a divine and human intersection going on and that God is opening doors right here, and that God is in control of his life, he begins to weep. 
Well, it evidently doesn't scare her off, but she does run home. He told, verse 12, Rachel, that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. She ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him, brought him to his home, and there Jacob told him all these things. And then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? We don't know what's going on in Laban's head right now, but I think we have a clue in the answer that Jacob gives. Look what he says in verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob, verse 18, was in love with Rachel and said to Laban, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. As I said, we don't know exactly what Jacob's thinking. We don't know what Laban's thinking either. But I surmise, reading between the lines, that, that Laban realizes, the shyster that he really is, realizes that he has a golden opportunity. After being there a month and working hard, he recognizes that Jacob is a hard worker. You're going to see in the next two chapters that Jacob is an incredibly hard worker and he is blessed of God. Almost like uh, Joseph in future chapters, everything his hand touches, God blesses. He's been there for a month. He's evidently just been in room and board. He's a nephew at his uncle's house. It's not inappropriate. But Laban now, the wheels are turning, and he had to see sparks flying between Jacob and Rachel. I just think he had to see it. He had to see him hustling out there, watering her sheep for her setting fence posts for her, things like that, that whatever she did as a shepherdess. He knows there's a connection. So I think Laban, the ultimate shyster businessman, realizes that Jacob is really, in, really interested in this and there's nothing he can do about it. So he says to Jacob, how about uh, you don't work for free? You're my nephew. You could stay here. It wouldn't be inappropriate just to work and room and board. But I want to pay you. What kind of wage do you want? I think he sets Jacob up for this, it seems. Bible scholars tell us that an appropriate dowry or wedding gift at this time would be three to four years of labor if you didn't have anything to give. See, if you were poor and didn't have anything to give, you could go work for the girl's father. I think this is a good system. Okay? It's just too late. I figured it out. So for three or four years, the guy works. Now, I suspect that Jacob is trying to influence Laban because he's doing something out of order that Laban will talk about later. And that is, in the culture, the older daughter has to go first. That's why he even says in there, for your younger daughter, I will work seven years. He's in love with her. He knows it's not likely to get Laban's blessing for the older daughter not to be married off first would be inappropriate and uh, an embarrassment to her. And so he wants to influence Laban. Laban's all about anything that in, empowers and enriches him. And so he agrees. You bet. Got a deal? You can work for seven years. Twice the amount of time for the wedding gift, for the dowry. And I'll let you stay here and you work and then you can marry Rachel. 
We don't know in the passage exactly in the Hebrew what that word weak eyes mean about Leah, the older daughter. Now, there's a couple ways of thinking about it. In this day, I take it that it was cultural, even as it is much today in, a, in a Afghanistan and other eastern countries where the traditions are held on to, for the woman to be covered with a flowing gown and even for her head to be covered. And what is exposed? The eyes are exposed. A weak, the word translates um, to mean soft. And so I don't know if in that day men did an awful lot of judgment making based upon what they saw in the eyes of that woman because that's almost all they got to see. However, the Moses, the historian, comments here, I would take it that it's Moses, that she was lovely in form as well. So I don't know. Somehow they watched enough and they could see that this is a, a beautiful woman. But evidently, Leah, Leah's eyes did not speak. Leah's eyes were either downcast or sad eyes. They didn't have the spark and the fire, evidently, that a Rachel had. That's about all we can surmise. So Laban says, It's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. And every woman in the audience wants to go, Aww. 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 Why don't you love me like that? If you love me, you would mow the lawn and it would seem like nothing. Aww. He loved this woman. He's 70-something years old. He's in love with this young woman. He's got to work seven years for her before he can enter into a household with her and set up his home with her as his wife. But it says his testimony of his love was so great that it just, his burden was light. The guy is totally struck. So then, and we know he's really struck by the next verse. Look what Moses tells us. And then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie down with her. We won't comment too much about that verse, but it's evident that Jacob finally wants his wife. He wants her now. And he's been checking off the days on the calendar. It's over. She's, it's time. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. And the commentaries tell me that that word feast in Hebrew implies lots of drinking. Makes sense to the rest of the story. Verse 23, But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her, and Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as his maidservant. That's, that's an important detail to remember. And when morning came, there was Leah. And IV says, exclamation point. And I say, no wonder. And we don't know what this poor girl Leah is thinking. She is obviously abused by her father in an, in an inappropriate way, manipulated. He's a shyster. She is told what to do. Whether she, from a distance, had a crush on this farmhand Jacob as well, we don't know. We do know in a few minutes, that she is miserable in her marriage with him, longing for the love of her husband. She had to know that her younger sister was the choice of Jacob. 
and where Rachel was put and how Leah was manipulated, in the darkness of the night, they go off to their tent in the covering of the gowns, in the drinking of the feast, evidently. The, the awareness was dulled down to the degree that on their wedding night, he enters the tent with his new wife, consummates the marriage physically, wakes up the next morning, and it's Leah. You've got to be kidding me. Seven years for this? Weak-eyed woman? And when morning came, there was Leah. You know, isn't it interesting, even in the Eastern cultures of the day, how abused and manipulated women are? Do you realize the freedom that Christianity brings to the home and the marriage when partners walk before the Lord in biblical obedience? He goes, so Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I've served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Na 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 na. Laban replied, oh, in this false sense of uh, high morality, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, I'll tell you what. <laughs> Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Rascal knew exactly what he was doing the whole time. And Jacob did so. Remember that great love? Now, when I was a boy in Sunday school and we would hear this story, not in this kind of detail, but we would understand the story that he worked for seven years for this and then he got the wrong wife. I thought always that he had to work another seven years. But no, he just had to finish out the week. And then he could take a second wife. Let's read the rest. And Jacob did so, verse 28, and he finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, as her maidservant. Another important detail. And Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and he worked for Laban another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, verse 34, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So his name was Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. She's giving up on her husband. So she named him Judah. And then she stopped having what an incredible story. We have just minutes left, but I'd like to make three important spiritual life applications in conclusion. Will you give me your attention? Number one, spiritual life impacting decision number one is entitled simply surrender and blessing. Surrender and blessing. What do we get out of a story like this? 
the first thing I'd like to point out is that I think it is clearly a blessing of the Lord. And it doesn't, not that it doesn't come wrapped up with some difficulties in a, in a difficult person named Laban. But do you think it was incidental and accidental that as he walked across the wilderness, he comes right to a well where Rachel is watering her sheep within minutes of his arrival? You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. In Psalm chapter 37, verse 23, it says this. If the Lord delights in a man's way, he makes his steps firm. I memorized that verse years ago in the King James Version. Psalm 37, 23, not in the NIV, but in the King James, says this. The steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. Surrender and blessings. Don't you see in this story... Jacob had no clue where he was going. Do you think it was just an accident that he encounters this? No. He had just surrendered his life to God. He now wakes up in the morning with a new spring in his step. He's on an adventure to see what God's going to do with his life. Do you remember that part of your Christian life? Living with anticipation. Lord, this is the day you've made. Lord, what a great day. What are you going to do in my life today? Somebody comes up and asks you, what's going on in your life? I have no idea. I just know I'm not the man I used to be and I'm going to see what God's going to do. You see, this is not a health and wealth gospel point. It is not, okay, I'll surrender my life to God and then I'll be able to get my new car, I'll get my college bills paid for, my credit card debt will be removed. No, that's nonsense. But clearly throughout Scripture, when you give your life, your plans, you surrender your will to God, then He is able to bless you in ways that He never could otherwise. I don't know how many times I've talked to people through the years and they come to me, Pastor Van, I don't know what's going on with me. Where's God when I need him? I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. And every this that they ever did is a violation of scripture. They never paid attention to God in their youth. They didn't pay attention to God in their young adulthood. They've made bad decision after bad decision, violated scripture after scripture, been disobedient. And then they wonder, what's wrong with my life? How come God doesn't bless me? You see, it's not magic and it's not manipulation. But when you have that 2 Corinthians 5.17 moment and you become a new creation in Christ and you surrender in a way you've never surrendered before and you surrender like Jacob surrendered, then God begins to bless you in ways that just make you laugh out loud. What is this all about? Wow! Lord! And you worship because of it. You say, Lord, I had no idea you were going to do this. Can I tell you a quick story about a phone call I had just last night? There's a lot to the call, and it's fun to tell you about it, but um, it's from Matt White. And if you're new to us, Matt Matt preached about five weeks ago here after he graduated from Appalachian Bible College, and he and his wife Amy had left us four years ago, went to Bible college. They had two daughters. Now they have a third son that the Lord's given them. And after graduation this spring, uh, Matt and Amy had been praying and, and felt led of the Lord to move to Southern California, to the Los Angeles area, where Matt is going to become a brand-new freshman now, a first-year student in a graduate program at Master's Seminary. 
And so all, uh, not this past week, but the week before, a week ago tonight, they arrived in California. So the whole week before that, they have been driving across the country, taking a whole week with their young children, see a few things to stop at hotels with swimming pools and just enjoy their trip out before they get there. And there they have a little apartment waiting for them in an apartment complex that is largely um, occupied by master's seminary students. And in fact, a master's seminary student is the overseer of those apartments. So Matt's telling me this at about 8.30 on the phone last night. I hadn't heard from him all week. It's been real busy. I thought of him. I didn't call him. He calls. I answer the phone and he goes, hey, this is California Matt. want to give you a report. He starts to laugh. He said, among other things, um, one of the things that happened last week, they got there late Sunday night, stayed in a hotel again in L.A., got up the next morning, Monday morning, went to their apartment complex, got checked in, turned on the electricity and everything, expecting their truck to arrive Monday morning right away. See, in Beckley, they had backed up a tractor-trailer thing to their door, loaded it, and then the guy was supposed to truck it across the country for him. And he had the master seminary students were all lined up to help him unload. And he got a call from the trucking company that the truck's delayed. It's not coming till Wednesday. They're sick of hotels. They got an empty apartment. He doesn't know what to do. So he talks to the master seminary guy who's over the apartments. And in minutes, he said, the phone started to ring. It rang from 10 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. Our doorbell began to ring from, ring from 10 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. We had to turn people away. He said, we had blankets and pillows and pots and pans and everything. And we camped out for three days. That's unbelievable. And then he told me this story. He said, one of the things I needed was a refrigerator. So I said to the guy, he said, who oversees the apartments, do you know where I can get a used refrigerator for a few years here in this little apartment? You see, when Matt had moved and Amy had moved to Beckley, they had a nice home in Martinsburg that Matt had built. He's 36 years old now and he's successful in business and when he packed up their home and they moved into their townhouse at Appalachian Bible College, the refrigerator was a piece of junk. And so he talked to the guy who was over the a married student housing at Appalachian Bible College. And the, he said, can I get rid of this refrigerator and bring my own refrigerator from Martinsburg when we move? And then when I move out of here in four years, I'll leave the refrigerator for you and you can have it. The guy said, deal. So they did that. They took their refrigerator down there, put it in the townhouse, lived there for four years. Now they moved to California, left the refrigerator, so they need a refrigerator. The guy from Master Seminary, who he's talking to, said, you know what, I saw a bulletin board announcement for a free refrigerator. So they get in the car and they run down the free refrigerator, they open the garage, and guess what? It's the exact same refrigerator he left in Bradley. I mean, not exact same, but same model. It's six years newer. And I can tell you some more stories that he told me. He's laughing the whole time. Laughing with the delight of a man who has surrendered and is in amazement at the blessing of God. That's what I mean by surrender and blessing. Second lesson. This one's quick because you know it well and you experience it often. It is, secondly, and I think you'll see it in this passage, the spiritual lesson of number two, sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. Another Proverbs. Listen to this Proverbs. Proverbs 26, 27. If a man digs a pit, he will fall into it. If a man rolls a stone, it will roll back on him. Do you get that? That is a weird Proverbs, isn't it? You're reading your daily Proverbs. What is this all about? If a man digs a pit, he will fall into it. 
If a man rolls a stone, it'll roll back on him. That is simply Solomon in his wisdom giving a pithy saying of what is taught in the Pauline epistle of Galatians chapter 6, starting with verse 7, where he says, Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. Who is the ultimate deceiver? Who is the guy who took advantage of the blindness of his father so that in his blindness and his lack of vision and sight went in and schnookered him of the most valuable thing he had? Jacob. Who now, in the darkness of night, when he cannot see as though he were blind, gets himself schnookered out of his wife? You see anything going on there? And I'm not saying that it's punitive. I'm not saying that it's a discipline, that, it, that it's punishment. I would suggest, though, that it is part of the spiritual schooling, part of the spiritual discipline going on in Jacob's life from his heavenly father. He says, Jacob, I want to show you the ugliest part of yourself. I want to show you that what you have sown all your life, you're going to reap now, and I want you to get rid of that nonsense. And we see nothing but a righteous Jacob from here on. The law of sowing and reaping. Galatians 6, starting with verse 7. Third spiritual lesson. Spiritual lesson number one, surrender leads to blessing. Sowing and reaping. The law of sowing and reaping. What goes around comes around. Learn from it. Renounce it. Third and final spiritual lesson. I've entitled it Sovereignty and failing. Sovereignty and failing. Here, let me explain. In the back part of this passage where we find that Jacob marries Leah, is given her maidservant Zilpah. She's given one by her dad. And then he ends up seven or eight days later marrying Rachel and getting Bilhah. Do you realize now that the baby competition begins? And that Jacob goes from being a successful bachelor, you might say, to eight days later, not only having one wife, not only having two wives, but down the road in just a few months, his wives will have him marry their servants, and the man has four wives in eight days, and he's going to have a bunch of children by him, and he wakes up in the morning, and he has to say to himself, what in the world is going on? I have a poem that I love to read, and I've used it numerous times. I think, I think it's about Jacob. It's called Marriage at an Early Urge. Nice night in June, stars shine, big moon. In park with girl, heart pound, head swirl. Me say love, she coo like dove. Me smart, me fast, me never let chance pass. Get hitched, me say, she say, okay. Wedding bells, ring, ring, honeymoon, everything. Settled down, married life, happy man, happy wife. Another night in June. Stars shine, big moon. Ain't happy no more. Carry baby, walk floor. Wife mad, she stew. Me mad, stew too. Life one big spat. Nagging wife, bawling brat, me realize at last, me move too fast. 
I don't know if that's about Jacob or not, but here's the point. I think that about 10 days into it, Jacob realizes he's got a mess on his hands. He has married sisters who are now jealous of one another and jealous of him. Does that sound familiar? And he doesn't know what's going on in his world. And he has to look around and say, Lord, you are blessing me and I didn't mean to make these decisions and all of a sudden here I am. But I want you to think about something. Did you notice the names of the children that Leah begins to have? Leah, the miserable one. Leah, the sad-eyed one. Leah, the one who is longing for her husband's love. Leah, who is jealous of her sister Rachel's position. She had a son named Levi, out of whom comes a man named Moses. She had a son named Judah. And from the tribe of Judah comes the household of Jesse, whose son is David, whose grandson is our Lord Jesus Christ. And God, in the midst of the miserable failure of this marriage week, is sovereign over even his mess. He didn't cause it all himself, but he has to wake up and say, what's going on? And in the middle of it, God is sovereign, and the child of promise comes through the relationship with Leah. Isn't that interesting? He's watching the pretty girl. God says, it's this girl. I wonder if you've been there. I wonder if you think your life's a mess and you don't know one life, one big spalling mess, spalling brat, spatting mess, whatever the words are. You ready to give up? You ready to say, what's the use? I've made so many mistakes. The, the skeletons of my past come back to haunt me in the form of a ridiculous father-in-law who schnookers me on my wedding night and just stupid stuff happening all the time, and I don't know what's going on. God is sovereign. Do you know that you don't have any clue most of the time, nor do I, what God is doing in our lives? Even in our failures, God is sovereign. There it is. And Leah is miserable, and Jacob is confused, and God is fulfilling promises. What an incredible ending. Let's bow in prayer. Before I close this out, are you experiencing the blessings that derive from surrender? Are you aware of the law of sowing and reaping? And are you willing to trust God as sovereign even over your failings? This might be a great moment for surrender right now. Maybe you think you got your act together and the fact of the matter is your life's a mess. Someone here needs to just cry out to God right now, admitting their sinfulness, believing that Jesus is the Christ, that he died for your sin and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Become a new creation in Christ. You can do that right now. Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus is my Savior and I need his righteousness I admit my sinfulness. I believe in Jesus. I call out to you today to be saved. Just do that. Others of us need to start believing what we really believe. Acknowledging the sovereignty of God even in our daily lives and choices.
Some we can control and some we can't control. Some we've brought on ourselves and some we haven't. God is still sovereign. You don't know what he's doing in your life. Do you trust him? Will you wait on him? Father, teach us, grow us, convict us, conform us. Thank you for these great stories. May we go from here sensitized and tender before you and surrendered, growing in a heart of love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.